you will notice a chair up here. It's not normally here. I've been asked to keep it with me until my endurance and oxygen levels fully return back to normal. Uh, we are continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter was, the, was a first-century follower of Christ. The Bible doesn't say he was a redhead, but I tend to think he was. He, he had a certain temperament. Uh, the first four books of the New Testament all record Peter's conversion to Christ. And they also record this baby Christian stumbling and failing and always saying the wrong things out of his foot-shaped mouth. But that's not the Peter that's writing this letter. It's the same man, but he's much older now. He's matured in his walk with Christ. He's not so quick to speak anymore. But when he does speak, everyone listens. He's in Italy now probably sitting at an outdoor eatery, enjoying a cannoli. And he, and he has a quill in his hand. And he takes a bite of cannoli and he dips the quill in his inkwell and he begins writing. Writing from Rome to a bunch of scattered churches 1,800 miles away spread across the Roman Empire. The churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And life isn't terrible for these Christians in these local churches at the moment. Uh, they may be facing local, localized, minor persecution, but they aren't facing the real crazy stuff yet. Now, don't get me wrong, the signs are all there. The marginalization of Christianity had begun. Although it wasn't full-blown persecution, it was like a powder keg. It was about to explode. And to the best of my research, Nero's rampage persecutions against Christians did not reach the outer parts of the empire where these churches were until after they received this letter. So they are reading this on the, at the onset of the Neronian barbaric persecution. Shortly after the readers received this letter, the deranged emperor Nero, who was under public suspicion that he started a fire in the very city in which Peter is currently writing, Rome, Nero blamed the arson on Christians, using them as scapegoats. He would eventually burn Christians at the stake and use them as human torches to light his garden parties. He would also feed them to lions. Now, Peter didn't know all that was coming, but he knew suffering was coming because it always follows God's people. In fact, in between his bites of cannoli, Peter writes to these churches a little section that centers around suffering. And here's how we'll break this section down. Sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer. One time it was God's will for Christ to suffer. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. Now, we're going to take those one at a time. First, sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer. Peter begins by saying, chances are, if you're doing what's right, no one will harm you. If you're just eating your cannoli, minding your own business, walking deeply with the Lord, it's unlikely anyone will bother you. Notice that in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? D.A. Carson, that Canadian theologian, paraphrases this by saying, in many contexts, you will not be harmed and should not expect to be harmed. 
end quote. For Christians living as they ought, the likelihood of suffering is small. Now, without the context, that's how I'm reading verse 13. But, I don't think I agree with the Canadian theologian, which is dangerous because my wife is Canadian, but I always agree with that Canadian, just not this Canadian. But that's, that's not Peter's emphasis throughout this letter. From this verse on, suffering will re remain paramount in this book. And it would fly in the face of the entire book of, of 1 Peter for Peter to be saying that suffering is rare and a remote possibility. Now, who is there to harm you if you follow Christ? The people sitting in the church pews hearing this read would have laughed and muttered, uh, Nero. Those churches knew John 15. They knew Jesus said, this world will hate you because they hate me. To fully grasp this verse, we must not separate it from the previous verse. Verse 12, Paul's rhetorical question in verse 13 comes right after what he tells them in verse 12, which is, they are recipients of God's attentive gaze. In this context, Peter is not saying sufferings are infrequent. Rather, he's assuring these believers that nothing can ultimately harm them if they continue to follow Christ. 12 and 13, both verses, are in the context of the final judgment of God. Any pain inflicted on you is only temporary and will be vindicated on the last day. Enemies may hurt us, but they cannot harm us. He's instilling a steel spine in their backs. In the ultimate sense, who can harm you? How emboldened these believers must have been after reading this verse. He continues in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. They can't ultimately harm you but they can temporarily hurt you, cause you pain, mental anguish, suffering. This word suffering is used throughout the New Testament to speak of people being mistreated, facing vicious hatred, enduring physical abuse. Have you ever suffered for following Christ? How did it make you feel? Blessed? No. No, I don't feel blessed. I feel hurt, demoted, ignored, maligned, stepped on, mocked. The natural reaction is to feel underprivileged, unfairly treated, not blessed. I, I feel like the object of God's neglect, not God's affection. Peter is preparing his readers to face suffering if they're going to live righteously. Peter echoes Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. It's the exact same phraseology that Jesus used. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Now notice the when and the where the blessing comes from in verse 14. The when. It comes at the same time as the suffering. We need to cling to, to sing, to eat this truth, for it will sustain us in our suffering. 
From where does this blessing come from? It comes from God himself. You are the privileged recipient of divine favor. Now, a little rabbit trail. There are pastoral conferences centered around teaching pastors how to increase their influence and reach on social media. There are conferences that teach pastors how to grow their church with the latest gimmicks or age and affinity programs. God help us. I have no desire for any of that. My only desire is to prepare you to face suffering. What are we hearing in pulpits across America? Ten ways to have a better marriage. Three secrets to form great friendships. How to thrive and not survive. Oh, clever, I see what you did there. The rhyme, thrive and survive. I want you to hear from this pulpit not only how to live for Christ, but how to suffer for him. I'm not giving you toys from a leadership conference. I'm giving you words to die by. The purpose of this section is to help you suffer. Those of you who are non-Christians, non-Christian, following Jesus can get you killed. I refuse to sugarcoat it for you. You say, I I don't know if I'm willing to die for this Christ. I don't know if I'm willing to lose family for this Christ, job opportunities for this Christ, weekend beach trips for this Christ. Then stay where you are, friend. Because when you come to Christ, you come to suffer. Peter goes on to show what suffering should and should not produce in you. It should not produce fear. Notice verse 14b. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not fear may be the most common command in the Bible. God tells us to shake off fear more than a hundred times. In fact, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8 where God told another group of Christians, do not fear. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 56.4? In God I trust, I shall not be afraid what flesh can do to me. You may face light suffering, intimidation for you to fall in line with the majority. Church, do not fear this world with its temporary passing disapproval. If you're a people pleaser, this will be hard for you. Don't worry about what they're going to say. Don't worry about what it will cost you. You will be pressured. You will be canceled. But don't let it trouble you. The word trouble implies emotional turmoil. You may face light suffering or you may face heavy suffering. Do not give in to the fear of persecution. Many Christians live under oppressive regimes where they are vulnerable, blamed for every problem, and economically exploited. There are Christians right now around the world in labor camps and prisons. Think about what it must have been like to live as a Christian under the the totalitarian rule of a Roman Caesar. You are a tiny minority surrounded by a hostile society. 
Suffering should not produce fear or emotional turmoil, but it should produce a determination to honor Christ while enduring suffering. Watch him unpack that, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. (laughs) To honor Christ the Lord as holy, church, that is to have a deep-seated confidence in your suffering that God is sovereign. A deep-seated confidence in your suffering that God is sovereign. We recognize his lordship by choosing to bless his name at all times. Verse 15b, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, many well-intentioned brothers point to this verse and talk about the need for apologetics. In fact, R.C. Sproul used this text that way. He taught that this was the classic text on the science of apologetics. Apologetics is not apologizing for the faith. I heard one country preacher say, I didn't take apologetics in college because I ain't apologizing for nothing. (laughs) Apologetics is the branch of theology that deals with the defense of the faith. Now, R.C. Sproul and I hardly ever disagree. We only disagree when he's wrong. And and that's mainly on baptism, but also this verse. Uh, Peter is not expecting us to have perfect argumentative skills and be able to answer every new accusation against Christianity. I am grateful for those who are skilled in rhetoric and philosophy and worldviews, those brilliant apologists who can answer every skeptic. I know my faith can be defended in the public arena. I have solid intellectual grounds for believing this gospel. But no one is going to be argued into the kingdom. You can't argue a dead man back to life. It takes the breath of God to awaken someone dead in their sins. And the intention of this verse is not to teach the science of apologetics. The intention of this verse is to show these Asian Christians why they are suffering. In the end, people want to know about your hope. How is it that you handle suffering the way you do? It doesn't require a degree in apologetics. It requires a theology of the sovereignty of God. And and it's, it's, it's so interesting to me that Peter uses the word hope rather than faith. Because I would think that the verse should say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the faith that is in you. But Peter says for the hope that is in you. Hope is a central word for Peter. Focusing on the eschatological inheritance that awaits believers. This passage constantly points us to the afterlife. Edmund Clowney says, Hope is the form that faith takes while under suffering. Now this defense may be formal, informal, before a court, before friends on a basketball court. Wherever it is, do it with verse 15, gentleness and respect. Defending is not attacking. It's not arrogant. It's firm and uncompromising, but always with the utmost courtesy. Peter is instructing these Christians on how to turn suffering into evangelism. He's presupposing that they're living in a way that will prompt questions. You evangelize by how you speak during suffering. You win people by gentleness, not cockiness. You're just a poor beggar telling other poor beggars where you found bread. 
in your suffering, gossip the gospel. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when, not if, when you are slandered. Church, how can a good conscience help you when you're being slandered? It will assure you that God knows your heart. And church, it will confirm in you that you can withstand the world's verbal assault. Verse 16 continues. Let's take a look at it again. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's shame down into silence. Cease their reviling. Again, this is taking us to our eschatological hope. Now, previously in the book of 1 Peter, it said some will see your good behavior and get saved. Here, some will refuse to acknowledge your good behavior, but will be forced to on the day of judgment. Now, Peter gives verse 17 to us in a proverbial form, a a catchy way to get it across. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter wants to give you this clarifying statement. Not all suffering is because of a righteous life. Some suffer because of bad behavior. And this is simple, cause and effect suffering. You do something bad, you suffer for it. You commit a crime, you get arrested. You make a joke about your wife, you sleep on the couch. Cause and effect. Peter wants to clarify he's talking about suffering for doing good. Sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer. One time it was God's will for Christ to suffer. Now fair warning, I may just lose it in this next verse. Because this truth is so glorious that it just makes me want to shout. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let me teach you a word. Vicarious. Vicarious. Vicarious suffering means suffering in the place of or for the benefit of another. Jesus' suffering was a vicarious suffering. He suffered in the place of and for the benefit of another. And this is the uniqueness of Christ's suffering that makes it different from yours. He went through physical suffering, as many of you are doing, but he also went through spiritual suffering. He suffered having God's billowing wrath poured on him. One time it was God's will for Christ to suffer, and it was vicarious suffering. But it was also a sacrificial suffering. Notice the phrase, once for sins. That's sacrificial language. All the lambs and pigeons and bulls in the Old Testament sacrificial system, all those repeated sacrifices found their completion in the final sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. What does once for all mean? No longer requires repetition. This is why the Protestant reformers could no longer participate in the Mass. For the Mass is celebrated as a sacrifice in which Christ is again offered for sin. And that's blasphemous. It's once for all. It was vicarious suffering. It was sacrificial suffering. 
But it was also undeserved suffering. Jesus suffered the punishment for human sin. He suffered for sin. See that? Not for his sin. He had no sin. He suffered for the sins of the elect. Peter has just been talking about, in the previous verses, about the righteous suffering. And then he kind of bursts our little bubble, and he says there's only been one truly righteous to suffer. Jesus walked the road marked with righteous suffering. He is the righteous sufferer. His suffering was sufficient because he was sinless. Our willingness to suffer for him is rooted in his willingness to suffer for us. He gave us his righteousness and we gave him our unrighteousness. What he accounts to us is an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It comes from outside of us. Jesus' suffering was vicarious, sacrificial, undeserved, and ordained. His suffering was undeserved, but it was also divinely ordained. Verse 18 says that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. God created you to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him. But you have turned away from him. You have set your heart against him. You are a rebel. And your rebellion separates you from this holy God. You are in exile. And you need someone to bring you home. And this is what the suffering of Christ did. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake. There was a darkness at noon. But there's also something that happened in the temple. The veil that separated the people from God's presence was torn. And it was not torn from the bottom to the top, but torn from the top to the bottom. God ripped it. And he was able to rip that curtain because he ripped his son. And that event symbolically showed what Jesus' suffering accomplished. He reconciled you to God. He gave you permanent, unhindered access to God's presence. Clarence Jordan, that old Greek scholar, says, God was in Christ, hugging the world back to himself. Dear non-Christian, that is enough right there for you to throw up your hands and repent of your sin. Run to the righteous sufferer, you unrighteous sufferer. Verse 18 continues, being put to death in the flesh. Dr. Gardner Taylor once said, before Christ came to earth, Christ couldn't die. This was the pre-existent Christ, the Christ before Bethlehem. But when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Christ became death eligible. And he could be put to death in the flesh. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The spirit of Jesus didn't have to be made alive. Don't misread this verse. It was already alive. Jesus was put to death in his physical body and made alive in his resurrected body. His resurrected body is his spiritual body. Jesus is not in heaven as a spirit, but as a man. Now, in verses 19 through 22, we find the result of Jesus' suffering. 
sometimes we come to a Bible passage that's just very hard to understand. And we have arrived at such a text. 2,000 years of church history has failed to develop a consensus on what these verses exactly mean. One commentator said it's the most difficult passage in the New Testament, filled with grammatical ambiguities and lexical uncertainties. In fact, the usually dogmatic Martin Luther wrote about verses 19 through 22, and I quote, Martin Luther said, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it, end quote. <laughs> well, thank you, Marty Mart. Uh, studying this passage has progressed since Luther's day, but I don't know that we found anything more concrete. David Helm said there are 180 possible different exegetical positions for this passage, and I intend to give all of them to you this morning. No, I'm just, uh, I will give you four. But after I've said 180, four doesn't seem so bad. So let me read it first and then I'll lay out the four positions. Verse 19. In which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there are some questions we must answer. Where did Jesus go? When did Jesus go? Who were the spirits in prison? What is the prison? What did Jesus say to the spirits in prison? There are, I have summarized the 180 into four main views. Uh, view number one, I call the Ma and Paul Baptist position. View number two, I call the Noah position. View number three, the impossible position. View number four, the strongest position. The, let's look at view one, the Ma and Paul Baptist position. Now, I, I, I was taught this, so I'll call this the Ma and Paul Baptist position with affection, not with disdain. Uh, this view states that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he went to a place called Abraham's bosom. That place is mentioned in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Abraham's bosom was a massive area broken into two sides. There was paradise and then there was Old Testament hell. Paradise is, is on the one side where the, the, the dead Old Testament saints were and hell is on the other side. Jesus descended to set the captives free. The captives were the Old Testament saints that were in a holding pattern until Jesus completed his work. So Jesus proclaimed the completion of the redemptive work and took the Old Testament saints to heaven. Now, what's the weakness of this view? Well, one has to do quite a bit of theological gymnastics to arrive at this position. And plus, it's built off that parable not being a parable and being an actual historical event. And I don't think it was. I preached on that text and the office can send you a link. Um, but many men I respect disagree with me, like Randy Alcorn. The Old Testament saints went to be with the Lord after death, not some holding tank. And that's why I don't hold to this position. But there are many scholars who have in the past and do currently. Uh, many 17th century pastors hold to this. John Calvin, I think, held to this. Uh, Tertullian, Doug Wilson, Robert Smith Jr., Warren Wearsby. Um, 
one of the senior citizen ladies in our church who has just been such a joy to pastor through the years, she teaches one of our ladies small group and, and she called me this week and she came across this view while reading a commentary in her study of Genesis. And she said, Kyle, I, I don't think I agree with that. And I said, I don't think I agree with it either. So let's move on to view number two. The Noah position. This view states that Jesus preached by his spirit through Noah. When Noah was building the ark, Jesus in spirit was preaching through Noah to non-believers who were on the earth at that time. They were spirits in sin's prison. Now what's the weakness for this? The word spirit, almost without exception, is always used to refer to angelic beings, not human beings. So the preaching was to angelic beings, not human beings. That's why I don't hold to this position. But there are many trusted scholars who do. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, many of the reformers, Patterson, Grudem, Feinberg, Clowney, Clark, Erickson, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, and Tim Keller. Now, view number three, the impossible position. This view states that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits of those who perished during Noah's flood. And he preached the gospel to them, offering them a second chance for repentance. Now, what's the weakness? The weakness is, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then after this, the judgment. There is no second chance of salvation. The entire missionary activity of the New Testament argues against such a position. But there are many people who hold to this, and some notable ones, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. And then there's what I call the strongest view. This view states that after Jesus' resurrection, he preached to the spirits, fallen angels, who were in prison. Now, scholars who hold to this, Kelly, Stibbs, France, not the country, but the theologian, Sanchez, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Tony Morita, and Tom Shiner. Now, none of these views are free from problems, including my position, but let me defend it. First, the word for proclaimed in the Greek is not euangelion. Euangelion means to preach the gospel. This word is caruso, which means to declare a proclamation. Peter is not saying Jesus preached the gospel. He's saying he announced his triumph over evil. And you could just see those demons rejoicing, throwing a party after Jesus' death. Then suddenly Jesus shows up in front of them giving a triumphant proclamation, his victory announcement. So that's first, but secondly, the word for prison. Every time prison is used, it's either referring to prison in the Greco-Roman world or a place where demons are imprisoned. I can prove that from Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. <laughs> Peter even talks about this further in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, thirdly, the Noah reference seems to make better sense with view number four. Right before Noah and the Ark, the Noah and the Ark account, there was an account with fallen angels who stepped out of authority and had relationships with humans. Now, what's the weakness of this view? Well, the weakness is where is the prison? We do not know the coordinates of this prison. We do know that some demons are imprisoned and some are able to move about in the world. 
those already in prison are awaiting the others to join them. Some of the people that hold to this position believe that the prison is in hell and that Jesus went to hell and proclaimed victory over these fallen angels. That's the Apostles' Creed view. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I think Jesus went immediately to be with the Father and the prison is a metaphor for Jesus' control and global announcement over demons. Either way, Jesus didn't go to the prison with a cross proclaiming the gospel. He went with a scepter proclaiming victory. And some of you are like, Kyle, I'm still not satisfied. I, I need a fifth view. I didn't give you a fifth view, but there is a fifth view. John Piper holds to it. John Piper says, I don't know what this passage means. <laughs> and I heard that and I was like, what is wrong with you, man? Take a position. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but in not First Peter, but the second book he wrote, Second Peter, Peter writes about Paul's letters. As Peter writing about Paul is interesting. And he says, some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. It's like it is a verbal slap in the letter. I read that and I was like, yeah, Peter, you're, you're the one to talk. You're really bottom shelfing everything for us here in, in First Peter. Some biblical writers are easy on the ear and hard on the heart, like Luke. But Peter and Paul are more hard on the ear and easy on the heart. Deep stuff to process, but it's all meant to comfort the heart. Now, we're all still talking about the results of Jesus' suffering. Now look at what Peter says in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Wait, what? Baptism saves you? Why in the world did Jesus suffer then? And there's been quite a few religious groups that have gone to seed on this verse and ended up teaching heresy. The Roman Catholic Church says saving grace is administered through baptism. The Church of Christ adds baptism as necessary to salvation. It's a horrible error that will damn many. Some of the early church used to do emergency baptisms for infants because they believed this. Adding baptism to salvation is not a light thing. If Catholics and the Church of Christ are dependent on their baptism for salvation, they will go to hell. The act of being baptized does not save you. And some of you have been baptized and you will still bust hell wide open. I'm not attempting to create doubt in your mind. I'm desiring to pull you away from that false assurance of that baptism when you were younger, saving you. It didn't. Peter had no thought of baptism saving you when he wrote this text. Baptism is a picture of God's rescue of repentant sinners. It doesn't do the rescuing. If, if, if Peter is saying baptism saves, then he's not only contradicting the entire book of 1 Peter, but also the book of 2 Peter, and all his sermons and acts, and the whole New Testament for that matter. Baptism which corresponds to this. What's this? It's corresponding to the flood in the ark. It's like Peter is writing and suddenly the Noah story triggers another parallel in his mind. How are the waters of the flood similar to the waters of baptism? Baptism corresponds to the flood. Baptism symbolizes the flood. In the, in the Noah story, the flood waters represented God's judgment. 
In baptism, it pictures or symbolizes our salvation from the floodwaters of God's judgment. And it's really so clear in the Greek. There's one Greek word translated into three English words. The three English words corresponds to this is really just one Greek word, antitypus. It's where we get our word antitype. There's a, a typological thrust here. The flood is the type, baptism is the antitype. That is the actual word. Baptism is the antitype. Stephen Davies says, Peter isn't saying that the act of baptism saves you, but that baptism is a picture of what saves you. It's an analogy, an antitype pointing you to what saves you. John MacArthur, J. Mac, explains, when Peter says baptism now saves you, he's referring to a spiritual reality. Dry baptism saves you, not wet baptism. Is this not what Romans 6, 3 teaches us? Do you not know that all those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The day you repented, you climbed into the ark of Christ. The Holy Spirit baptizes you safely into the work of Christ. That's dry baptism. Alistair Begg says it like this. What saves you is portrayed in baptism, not performed by baptism. Here, Peter even deliberately adds a statement in parenthesis in order to make unmistakably plain that it is not participation in the outward form of baptism that saves you. Verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Peter says, I don't mean by that water removes sin like water removes dirt. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. That's a, a legal word, pledge. But as a pledge to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A pledge. Christians agree that God's judgment on them and on sin was laid on Christ. That's the pledge. Baptism is a pledge to live out this changed life I am claiming that happened. An internal transaction symbolized by an outward ceremony. Now, we're still talking about the results of Jesus' suffering. Notice verse 22. Jesus, who was gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to heaven. On earth, the rulers rejected Jesus. In heaven, they are subjected to Jesus. And suffering was the pathway to exaltation. Jesus is enthroned, and all powers and authorities are subject to him. This is what the gospel holds out to us. Submit to this enthroned king. Now I have two applications for you. And they're shorter, but I want them both to land on you. Application number one. Turn your suffering into evangelism. This text propels us to share the gospel with urgency. We don't believe in a second chance after death. You remember the area Peter was writing to? It was circled on that map. It's modern-day Turkey. 
How is evangelism going there? There are more Baptist churches in the state of Tennessee than evangelical believers in Turkey. And these evangelical believers in Turkey eat this passage for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because they suffer daily for their faith in Christ. Every single person will spend eternity in one of two places. Heaven will be eternally satisfying for some and hell will be eternally horrifying for others. Repent, dear friends. Take the gospel to the nations and the neighbors. Application number two. Your suffering is merely temporary. Some of you are going through horrible suffering. Disgusting things. When I think about what you have endured, it makes me gag. I read one woman this week who said, there was a time in my young Christian life when I thought that vicarious spiritual suffering meant vicarious physical suffering. That because Jesus suffered, I didn't have to. That's not the case. But you can be comforted in knowing that suffering will not have the last word. This text teaches that it is impossible for you to be ultimately and permanently harmed. Church, no matter how deep and painful the suffering you've experienced, rest in this. Christ suffered the ultimate suffering in your place. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.